Hello, hello, and welcome to another Battle of the Month Curiosilus podcast episode. As ever, I am joined for all the wisdom that Will Randall has to offer. Hello, everyone. It's good to be back. It is good to be back. And we've got an absolute corker today. Oh, do we? Do we? We are going to be discussing the Battle of Cannae. historian Richard Miles as Rome's greatest military disaster. A pretty huge and pivotal encounter and one of the most iconic battles in the entirety of history. Yeah, its significance is not doubted, let's say. Yeah, and we shall come on to how far-reaching it ended up being. By way of introduction, this was pitched battle fought in southeast Italy near the village of Cannae. It was fought between Carthage, who was under the command of its legendary general Hannibal, and the Roman army was commanded by its two consuls, Gaius Terentius Varro and Lucius Aemilius Paulus. It was the year 216. I think August is the generally agreed time of year. And it was part of the Second Punic War, which lasted between 218 and 201. Um, just to set the scene with the Punic Wars, all of these are between Carthage and Rome. The First Punic War, 264 to 241, was basically squabbling over Sicily. Carthage ended up losing. Second Punic War, during which we get this battle, Cannae, uh, was the continuing struggle for supremacy in the Mediterranean, which again ended in Carthaginian defeat. And then a bit later on in the Third Punic War, 149 to 146, was fought entirely in Carthaginian territory in North Africa, where the young Scipio Aemilianus was appointed consul and commander, eventually stormed the city of Carthage and flattened it. Carthago delenda est. And it was delended. Yeah. yeah. And supposedly salt was sown in the earth, but I believe that is legend. Yes. The city was eventually rebuilt about 100 years or so later as, as a Roman city. But that was the end of Carthage as the major rival to Rome in the Mediterranean. The Battle of Cannae in 216 then, in the Second Punic War, was a major encounter when Hannibal ended up marauding Italy for well over a decade, wasn't it? Yeah, best part of 15 years or so. Yeah, which is slightly mad. Yeah. And we have three main sources for this battle. Polybius, who is closest in terms of years. Livy was writing under Augustus at the turn of the millennium. And then we have Appian a bit later, but he diverges quite significantly from the other two, so his account is generally ignored. Right, so to introduce the battle, we might as well introduce the general situation. Um, Yeah. Hannibal had come over the Alps in 218, which is quite a famous undertaking for its... Extraordinary, unprecedented, perhaps. Yeah, the, elef- was, the elephants it was are the very bigfoot. unprecedented, and just very surprising that he managed to pull it off. Really, he managed to get at least thirty-seven elephants across the Alps, and he crossed relatively late in the year. I think it was about September time. 
So they had all sorts of nasty conditions, which killed, I think it's up to about a third of his troops, but he pulled it off. The show goes on. Uh, The exact route that he took is heavily debated. And interestingly, actually, Napoleon himself weighs into the debate, offering his own opinion, although I think it differs from what most modern scholars believe to be the most plausible routes, so unlucky Napoleon. Shame. But still, interesting. Did you know that in 1959, a Cambridge engineering student borrowed <laughs> borrowed an elephant from Turin Zoo what? <laughs> and walked it across the Alps to try and recreate And he did it? Hannibal's or... March. Yep. He, he marched did it. his elephant, yep, called Jumbo. Marched across the Alps in ten days, which is quite fun. I'm not sure you would be allowed to do that. Yeah, you definitely wouldn't be allowed to do that now. I think the zoo would have a lot to say about that. Yeah. One of the things I did find interesting about it though is that Jumbo, during the the ten day walk, had a diet of sixty eight kilograms of hay, twenty three kilograms of apples, eighteen kilograms of bread, nine kilograms of carrots every day. Four. And still lost two hundred and thirty kilograms. Across really? the trip. Christ. And if you think that Hannibal brought 37 down from the Alps. Yeah. And I, it's hard to say how many he attempted to cross with, but let's say 100, maybe more. Just think about, like, how It's much... the supplies. It's insane. Yeah. It's just And insane. trying to do it in, at the start of winter. Yeah. You know? And also with the element of surprise and speed. Yeah. Amazing. Um, so yeah, he made it across the Alps with 37 elephants, at least, but not many of them survive for very long, and by the end of the winter of 218, they had uh, all died, which was sad. Well, wasn't there one lone one? Just Yeah, which was, just which was possibly Hannibal's favourite Yeah, elephant. I can't remember elephant. its name. It's called Syros. Syros, okay. Yeah, just like it a, was possibly the only elephant to survive that winter. The mascot, who just followed the army yeah. around. But there were no elephants by the time we Hannibal fought at Cannae. Yeah. Hannibal's brother, Hasdrubal, also actually crossed the Alps in 208. Yeah, with reinforcements. Also with elephants. Yeah. If Appian is to be believed, Hasdrubal made it into Etruria with 15 elephants. So, pretty good game. Another good effort. Yeah. Yeah, so once Hannibal was across the Alps, he promptly set about inflicting a series of catastrophic defeats on Rome, essentially, Yeah. at Trebia in 218, and then Lake Trasimene in 217. Yeah, I mean, both were pretty catastrophic in normal terms, but they really pale in comparison to Cannae, which, you know, yeah. you'll, you'll, you'll see why. The, the Romans at Trebia and Trasimene lost... Several tens of thousands, but up to forty or fifty thousand men, I think. But I mean, they were consular armies. Yeah, out. yeah, they were they were essentially the expeditionary force to to stop Hannibal charging his way down through down through Italy, and on both occasions were completely smashed. Some some survivors managed to get away, especially at Trasimene, where um, it was essentially a massive ambush, uh, which turned into a slaughter by a lake, but. About 15,000 of the Romans at the front managed to press on and escape to a nearby town, which explains the um, the attitude of the Romans going into Cannae, because, well, 
after they'd chosen a, a policy of, well, waiting around for quite a while, this guy, Fabius, was made dictator for a year, so he had extra powers that wouldn't normally be accorded to him in a, in a normal year. He became the sole ruler, if you like, and he thought, well, we've lost twice, you know, let's not try again. It's, the plan's clearly not working, so... Um, so he just avoided pitch battles. Yeah, so they just they just avoided, and as a result, Hannibal actually made it all the way down to southeast Italy, like we said. So Cannae is actually... Well, Trasimene and Trebia were further north of Rome, but Cannae is about 250 miles southeast in Apulia. So um, there's a long distance between those two battles. And I think after a while of waiting around, the Romans basically got bored. They saw that Hannibal was marauding the countryside and trying to bait them into a battle. And they'd waited long enough... They thought, oh, this is ridiculous, this guy's he's in Italy, he's in our home territory. Can we please, please do something about him? So using their knowledge of these, these 15,000 men at Trasmine breaking through, they thought, let's, let's muster a huge, huge force, march to meet him and just smash straight through him, brute force. But it didn't really go to plan, as <laughs> we'll now discuss. It's a bit of an understatement when I say it didn't really go to plan. It, it was... Um, one of the most catastrophic, one of the most catastrophic battles for a side I can imagine throughout all of human history. Yeah. Yeah, the disaster. And what makes it even more impressive as well is that the Carthaginians were significantly outnumbered at Cannae. Oh, yeah. The sources are essentially, you should never take the figures in ancient sources at face value mm. and, and should always look at them slightly cautiously, but we reckon somewhere in the region of forty or 50,000 troops on the Carthaginian side. Yeah. Facing off against, I think it's about 86,000 Romans. Yeah, it's, I think infantry-wise, the Romans had 80,000 to Carthage's 40,000. That's a rough estimate. So they had double the men. But the one, the one area that Carthage was superior was cavalry. So the Carthaginians yeah. had about 10,000 10, men on horseback, as opposed to the Romans who had about... 6,000, 7,000. But, you know, going into the battle, you'd think, well, surely, by weight of numbers, Rome Rome can't lose. And it can't be annihilated, surely. 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 Uh, but no. So, well, yeah, what, what happens is, I'm not going to go to, you know, rant too much about <laughs> the tactics involved, otherwise I don't, I don't want to make people fall asleep. But, um, yeah, so it's a very narrow plain. There's a river um, on one side and then kind of a hilly pot on one side. So it's, there's a square of about five to six miles. And, you know, into this is packed over 125,000 men. So it's pretty it's dense, densely packed. And um, what Hannibal does is he sets his infantrymen up in the middle and his cavalry on the wings who were brought over from Numidia, which is modern day kind of, well, eastern Algeria. And the Romans kind of mirror him they put their infantry in the middle and their cavalry in the wings but they have so you know their overwhelming strength in numbers means that they're very very deep and they think we'll push through the middle completely scatter them and then you know game over we 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 get a victory but Hannibal kind of predicted this was going to happen so the at first there was a cavalry skirmish on the wings and the Carthaginians won because they had superior numbers while this was happening, the infantry eventually engaged, and the Romans thought, oh, this is all going to plan, because they started making some progress in the middle, and Hannibal set up in quite a hollow, almost like a V formation, and kind of let the Romans come onto him in the middle. And his plan was to, to wheel his dudes on the flanks around. And then, well, so it's 
Varro, the consul who's taken part in the cavalry skirmish, and he gets he doesn't get killed, but he gets chased off essentially. So he he flees the field of battle because the Roman cavalry lost, and the Carthaginians pursue them to make sure the Roman cavalry can't rejoin the fight. Um, and once that's done, they return to the backs of the Romans. And essentially what you have now is just the Romans are completely surrounded on all sides. Yeah, that's um, the perfect pencil movement. Yeah, and, it, and what follows is a bloodbath. So, you know, this tiny, tiny square of five, five six miles squared. It's estimated that about 600 Romans were slaughtered every single minute. Which, that is an astonishing Which fact. is just brutal. It's so brutal. And the thing is that the, the Carthaginians still had to do the slaughtering. It's not. It's not like they had a, a machine gun that they could just spray into this mass of men like in modern times. They had to mechanically go through every single Roman mast in this wedge and just butcher them one by one. Which I'm surprised that they they were so overwhelming because even though they'd completely surrounded the Romans, you know they're they're still up against fully armored heavy Roman legionaries. Yeah, I think it's probably. I mean, I imagine there's a sense of panic. There's no cohesion. I th- I know there was a tiny little group of men who managed to escape, including Scipio Africanus, who yeah. um, is important later on in the in the story, which I'm sure we'll touch on. But yeah, apparently that was a, a, a tiny group of 500 men. One of the sources, it's either Livy or Polybius, also noted that the Romans were just so densely packed that they could hardly yeah. wield their weapons they, they were yeah. just in a crush which i suppose explains how it, was, it, how it does actually make sense because yeah it's just it's just so many men in such a tight tight square and when you've got cavalry too who can charge in you know they're just going to squish the romans and they're not going to be able to put up any proper resistance and well i mean for the carthaginians supposedly by modern estimates hannibal lost about 11 percent of his army which is actually very high in the ancient world for a victorious army but it shows, well, it was worth it, essentially, given how many Romans they slaughtered. And to kind of put it into perspective on Rome as a whole, it's obviously, once you, once you get past certain numbers, it kind of loses meaning. But you know, in the course of these two years, so with, with the previous two battles, Rome had essentially lost 20% of its entire male population over the age of 17, which is just silly. You know, it's, an, it's an unbelievably bad run. Yeah, like one one in every five of your friends is just gone in the space of a summer or two. Livy noted that after the battle there was a national day of mourning because supposedly there was not a single person in Rome who was not either related to or acquainted with someone who died yeah. at Cannae. So the impact on the Roman population must have been... It's also also the thing is it's not at all related to just the you know the lower down classes because at this point Rome still had a citizen levy army you know a consul Paulus one of the consuls who was remained on the field of battle afterwards was killed as were a whole host of the nobles who were mm. formed part of the government so yeah it it really didn't discriminate I mean one of the comparisons that's made is the Somme in World War One because obviously in the space of a day Britain lost about sixty thousand men. But that was just casualties. That wasn't all slaughtered on the field of battle. You know, Britain lost a lot of the lot, lot of the officer class in the First World War because you know they had to charge over the trench with just a pistol. But yeah, it's so similar to that. But 
you know, this rather than just machine guns gunning down people over a, over what like a massive front. This was five to six square miles, eighty thousand men in a tiny, you know, this tiny square just slaughtered by, you know, shields, swords, yeah. spears. The scene must have been utter, utter yeah. carnage in the aftermath of the battle. Must have been such an overwhelming sight. Yeah. Um, because Polybius reckons that 70,000 Romans were killed, mm. as well as 10,000 captured. Livy reckons it's closer to about 50,000. So does Plutarch and Appian. Quintilian reckons 60,000. Eutropius, 40,000. I mean, they're all... In the tens of thousands. Unbelievable yeah. numbers. Yeah, yeah. Just crazy. So it's no surprise that everyone back at Rome was in a slightly panicked state. They'd basically run out of armies... Yeah. to defend Rome. So as well as that national day of mourning, they consulted the Sibylline books, which were only ever consulted in moments of momentous crisis. Uh, and interestingly, on the recommendation of this reading, they um, buried alive two Gauls yeah. and two Greeks in, um, in the city, which is a strange sort of way of going about mm. solving can I? But yeah, desperate times call for desperate measures. Indeed. Um, they also sent a delegation to the Oracle at Delphi, who presumably didn't advise them to bury some people alive. Yeah. But they immediately set about recruiting new legions, and they lowered the age limit on who could enlist, and they also recruited criminals, debtors, and even some slaves. They were getting that desperate. But it's uh, it's also worth talking about how despite you know how catastrophic things were they just they didn't even entertain the possibility of coming to terms yes because Hannibal after he had about 8,000 prisoners who wanted to ransom and well one of the things laid at his door is why didn't he then march on Rome but like I said you've got to remember it's 250 miles away and Rome's still Rome's still a large city and it would have taken a long time to subdue so he kind of sent a delegation over to try and ransom for these prisoners and the Romans they didn't even, not only did they not even refuse to, you know, entertain the possibility of thinking about terms, they refused to even let the envoys into the city. And yeah. just flat out said no. They prohibited the word peace yeah. in the city. <laughs> and mourning was limited to 30 days. And tears in public were prohibited, including to women. Very stark. I mean, it's unbelievably stark given the situation. It's such a, a bleak outlook. Yeah, you know this is a huge Carthaginian <laughs> army is loitering potentially going to rampage on, yeah, and they've they've got nothing at the moment, and yet they stubbornly fight on. And also, it's not just the threat of Carthage. I think following the news, Philip the Fifth of Maston joined yes, the Carthaginian right. side, which is obviously a bit of a bit of a disaster. And also, lots of Italian cities defected. So the second largest city in Italy, Capua, defected to the Carthaginians. And let Hannibal in. Yeah, and all the Greek cities on Sicily revolted from Roman control. Yeah, like it's it's insane. I think that's what Hannibal's tactic was actually. Yeah. So he um, he decided not to assault Rome itself because he judged his army wasn't quite in a fit enough state to to take that on. Mm. I think what he was trying to do was basically wear down the Roman war effort by smashing them on the battlefield, and then stripping them of their allies, essentially. Yeah. Which would then lead to a moderate peace agreement. Mm. But it's it's just remarkable, because obviously Rome now had to contend with Maston, 
and also they were still fighting in Spain. So this, you know, the the combat here is not just limited to um, Italy. And I think they they still in the aftermath, they sent off like another two legions to go help Scipio in Spain. Yeah. Yeah. It should also be noted that there was another very significant loss that same year. Yeah. In Italy at the Battle of Silva Litana, mm. where this chap Lucius Posthumius Albinus was in command of about twenty five thousand men. They were ambushed by the boy. Yeah. Uh, this this tribe, and according to Livy, only ten Roman men escaped the battlefield. <laughs> it's not a great ratio. Yeah, yeah. I mean, total destruction again. Posthumus himself was decapitated, and his head was taken to a boyi temple, where the skull was covered in gold and used as a drinking cup by the high priest. Yeah, which is a pretty I mean... emphatic statement of victory, really. So it's incredible that. Rome had the resources and the willpower to fight on for another 14 years and eventually see out the war. Yeah. Because, I mean, also, it's also worth saying that in the ancient world, usually in campaigning seasons, people, the two opposing sides would say, right, raise the men in the springtime, march to the enemy, fight a battle in the summer, whoever wins dictates terms, and then we just go home and act like gentlemen, and that's it. And then we can we can fight again in a couple of years' time. But this was this was total war. Yeah. It's yeah, it's ridiculous. Entirely. Honestly. And and it lasted for such a long time because that was essentially the story of the first, the second and the third Punic Wars. It was just this constant struggle for supremacy when these two powers were just throwing everything they had at each other. Yeah, I think it's also it's also worth saying that Rome had a lot more manpower than Carthage because Carthage relied on a lot of um, you know, mercenary contingents. And they weren't very homogenous, in the sense that Rome Rome was just basically raising men off the land of Italy. Obviously, it's not you know afraid to use mercenaries, but Carthage was a trading empire, if you like, that was very well spread out over Spain, um, the Balearic Isles, North Africa, Libya, and well, obviously in the first period, all parts of Sicily and um, Sardinia too. So, yeah, I think I don't. I mean, that must obviously help the Romans because you feel more attached to your city and you're, you can't really... Well, you're less likely to betray it. Whereas if the Carthaginians had maybe, you know, been massacred, they would say, right, we'll, we'll call full-time here, we, we admit defeat. But, I mean, it, the, the sad thing is for Hannibal's sake is it, it didn't work. You know, after all this, the Romans actually won the war 15 years later. He kind of... He, he hung around in Italy until... It's 203 or 202 BC, so for, like, another 12, 13 years. Meanwhile, this, this young gun, Scipio... Africanus was tearing it up in Spain and kind of eradicated Carthaginian influence over there. And then eventually Carthage recalled Hannibal to Africa because they were so worried that they were going to be the ones now invaded. And then the same Scipio turned up in 202 and he actually defeated Hannibal at the Battle of Zama. Um, which Where he did have elephants, I think. Yeah, he had a lot of elephants. Um, but I think they weren't actually very effective. I think at Zama they mm. kind of ran amok and just ran off essentially they got a bit scared but yeah it was still it's still an impressive victory for Scipio to defeat the, the man the myth the legend that is Hannibal but um mm. yeah and then and then Rome won what happened to Hannibal after that so Do you know he had a pretty interesting career afterwards he basically he stayed in Carthage after for for a short while um i think that their kind of their consul position equivalent is called a suffet or Sifates. And he kind of gathered the money needed to pay for the, the indemnities set 
by Rome and kind of discovered that, oh, we actually have quite a lot of money. We can we can manage this. I think a lot of Carthaginians who were corrupt were like, nah, we, we don't want to do this. Um, and he actually got, he got exiled, which is, isn't the, the best way to treat, well, I mean, the, one of the only Carthaginians I can name and certainly the most famous of all time. And he fled to the Seleucid Empire. The ruler at that time was Antiochus III, also known as the Great. And he was kind of served as an advisor to him. And then they lost the Battle of Magnesia to the Romans again. So then Hannibal had to flee again to... He finally ended up in Bithynia, um, which is kind of the... North Turkey. Yeah, kind of very northern, northwest Turkey, where he eventually died because he was going to get given up to the Romans, so he decided to top himself instead. I think there's a prophecy that stated that he... Yeah, it said Libyssen... This is recorded by Appian, so it's a bit dubious, but it said Libyssen earth shall cover Hannibal's remains, and he took this to mean Libya, because um, it's, you know, Libyssa, Libya, what does that mean? But um, Libyssa is actually a place in Bithynia, so he ended up dying there. And also there is one very dubious encounter which i'm sure is mythic but i'm gonna um, mention it anyway so apparently when he was chilling over at the court of antiochus in the seleucid empire i think it was maybe shortly after magnesia or something he bumped into scipio scipio africanus yeah scipio africanus wow yeah and they just had a nice how did that go down well so they had a nice chat according to appian so again let's face it it probably didn't happen but it's nice to think it did and essentially what happened is um they were just they were just had a meeting at a, at the gym, and they just started talking about um you know generalship, and Scipio was like oh, given I I beat this guy a couple of years back I'm gonna I'm gonna see what he thinks see if he's kind of gotten over it by now, so he walks up and says um, who do you think's the best general of all time? And Hannibal just goes Alexander, like hands down. He's like yeah yeah fair enough actually fair enough I'm like I'm not I'm not gonna beat him. So he goes okay who and who would you put second? And Hannibal goes, Pyrrhus of Epirus, who the Romans had defeated a, a little while before the, the Carthaginians. This where we get the phrase Pyrrhic victory from. Um, and he says, for it would not be possible to find two kings more enterprising than these. So Scipio is a bit annoyed now. He's thinking, you know, where's he going to, where's he going to place me? Where's he going to place me? Come on. And he goes, right. Okay. What about third? Like, surely, surely, you know. And um, he goes, Hannibal just says, me, obviously. <laughs> um, and Scipio is a bit pissed off. Oh, and Hannibal goes, well, no, it's obviously me. For when I was a young man, I conquered Spain and crossed the Alps with an army, the first person to do so after Hercules. So Scipio kind of saw that Hannibal wasn't going to give him what he wanted. He says, so where would you place yourself if you hadn't been defeated by me at Zama a few years back? And he says, well, I'd, I'd obviously put myself first. Um, and... <laughs> Kind of that's the conversation tails off, and you know Hannibal's obviously not gonna not gonna let Scipio get any um, praise. But he, I think Scipio kind of left thinking, well, if I can defeat Hannibal, he would have been the the best. If if I hadn't beaten him, then I'll take some pride in that. So um, yeah, it's a nice story. It's nice to think it would have happened, but I, I I don't think it would have. And then yeah, apparently they were just like, well, good to see you. And Scipio was like, oh, you should come over and have dinner. But he was like, oh no, I I, I can't because. The, the guy who, whose course I'm at isn't actually a big fan of you Romans, so I'd probably get killed if that was the case. And then they just left. Wow. Yeah. That's such a rogue encounter. Yeah, I mean, it's it's probably 99% not true, but it's a great story. It's a great story. 
I, I like that idea of, you know, these two hugely successful generals sort of just harbouring at least a degree of mutual respect. Yeah, it's like old foes have come to just, yeah, shake each other's hands at the end of the game and be like, yeah, fair play. Yeah, just invite um, for dinner. <laughs> yeah. No hard feelings. <laughs> yeah. It's great. I think I think I would stick Hannibal over Scipio. Yeah, I mean the the the, the hat trick was uh, yeah. I mean, it's just, just so total impressive. dismantling of the Roman armies in Italy. Yeah, it's it's just masterful general. Again, like Scipio was very impressive in Spain, where well, he was outnumbered by a Carthaginian force in the area. But he, I mean, he was good. Like he was really good. But um, yeah, I mean, I just you, just you can't get past Hannibal. Can I in particular? Like it's just yeah. insane. Can I was seen as something of a gold standard for battlefield tactics. For oh yeah, about the next two thousand years. Yeah, like the Prus- the Prussians, like Frederick the Great and Schlieffen, like Schlieffen's plan, he based it off. Can I? Yeah, that's something I noticed actually. Yeah. These a lot of German yeah. military theorists, like Clausewitz, von Moltke, like they all just were like Hannibal. We got, we got to, we got to. How do we pull that off again? It was, it was insane. There's a, an interesting little panegyric of Hannibal from this military historian from the 19th century, a guy called Theodore Eyrault Dodge. Okay, which good name. Which is in itself a great name. Yeah. And he goes as follows. Few battles of ancient times are more marked by ability than the Battle of Cannae. The manner in which the far from perfect Hispanic and Gallic foot, so that's Hannibal's infantry, was advanced in a wedge in echelon, was first held there and then withdrawn step by step until it had reached the converse position, is a simple masterpiece of battle tactics. The advance at the proper moment of the African infantry and its wheel right and left upon the flanks of the disordered and crowded Roman legionaries is far beyond praise. The whole battle, from the Carthaginian standpoint, is a consummate piece of art, having no superior and few equal examples in the history of war. Dodge, now, I, yeah. think, I think Dodge gets a bit over-enthusiastic in essentially glorifying the destruction of tens of thousands yeah. of Romans, but it is a testament to the extraordinary precision and mm. ability that, that Hannibal as a commander could control his, his troops. Yeah, I mean, many, many people also say that, like what we touched on how the Roman army was, you know, they were mostly, if not all, Roman whereas Hannibal used mercenary forces. But obviously there's something, there needs to be a glue that keeps them together, and like that was just Hannibal as an individual. They, yeah. They're not fighting for Carthage as a city, they're just fighting because someone's paying them, obviously. But um, also, you know, you want to fight under the standard of, of Hannibal, because he's just, he's just so Such good. You know, like, you know that even if you're up against odds, he's going to pull something out of his hat like that, and you're going to be fine. It's also it's also worth saying I found this on the internet and I couldn't find a source whatsoever so it might be completely untrue but apparently not immediately after but um you know in the imperial period Romans started setting up statues to Hannibal just as a sign of mutual respect really yeah they just built statues of Hannibal here and there and were like That's so interesting this guy like he, yeah closest we ever the archetypal to. enemy of Rome yeah well but, I mean yeah, you would... that that sense of respect is um it's a testament to his ability. Yeah, I mean, obviously, everyone hates the ghouls, but um, when it comes to the Carthaginians, there is a level of... Actually, they were, they were pretty pretty impressive. And it's also, it's also the whole, you know, the thing when 
Scipio Aemilianus is looking on the destruction of Carthage and starts crying, when Polybius says that he's weeping because one day that could happen to his own city. And he also makes the assessment that this was Rome's last rival, essentially just wiped out. So it was yeah. in the ascendancy, which was good, but obviously it's going to lead to its eventual destruction because there's no reason for them to be competitive and on guard. Obviously it takes a long, long time for that to happen. But It's kind of like um, how the Joker always says how he needs Batman. Yeah, literally. He just, he just needs that. Like, <laughs> he needs something to keep him going. That yeah. rival. Otherwise, what, what's, he, what's his purpose? You know? Too yeah. easy after that. Did you know there was a second Battle of Cannae? Oh, you always whip these out when we do battles. I love second battles. When was it? Go on. 1018. 1018? Yeah, so a long time. Yeah, 1018 Was it? Was it Normans versus Byzantines? It was Byzantines versus Lombards. Okay. And the Lombards did have some Norman cavalry with them. Okay, okay. The Byzantines were fighting under this chap called Basil Boyoanes. Now, Basil was the catapan of Italy, which I think was a sort of provincial government type in the Byzantine period. And he was fighting the Lombards under this chap called Melus. And his Norman, Melus's Norman cavalry was under the command of a guy called Gilbert. 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 Basil had a detachment of the Varangian Guard with him, which he had specifically requested from the Emperor Basil II who yeah. you can learn more about in our first yes. podcast episode. Great man. The absolute legend that is Basil II. So, yeah, he sent some Varangian guard off to Italy, and Basil Boyoanes smashed the Lombards. So yeah. the second, second Battle of Cannae was not quite as emphatic, but still uh, a pretty decisive victory. Well, a Roman victory this time, as opposed to a, yes. a Roman defeat. Slightly better. Yeah, the poor old Gilbert, he was killed... And the Lombard leaders fled. Melus escaped back to the court of the Holy Roman Emperor. And his brother Datus fled to a tower at Monte Cassino. Reading from this led me down quite an entertaining okay. rabbit hole, Go on. as it usually does. So Basil also had some Normans, yeah. I think. He built this fortress where he stationed his Normans, and he called this fortress Troia. So, literally, Troy, which was then besieged by the Holy Roman Emperor Henry II. But unlike its slightly more famous, older homonym, it was uh, never actually captured. Um, But, having captured this Datus, Basil um, inflicted on him the rather curious punishment whereby he tied him up in a sack with a monkey and a rooster and a snake and tossed him into the sea. But it turns out this is actually a, uh, based on a Roman form of punishment. So so this is the poena calei, which is literally punishment of the sack, which was a type of death penalty under Roman law imposed on people who were found guilty of parricide, so killing their father. Yeah, They were sewn up in a leather sack <laughs> with an assortment of live animals. This is really hard luck on these animals. I don't know what they've done <laughs> yeah. to deserve this. Yeah, I don't know what they've done wrong. But under this Roman law, you'd be tied up in a sack with a dog, a snake, a monkey, a chicken, and or a rooster. 
and then thrown in some water. And the idea, I think, because it was a leather sack, you actually die of suffocation rather than mm. drowning. So it must have been absolute chaos in this sack. Everyone flailing. Well, around. surely there'd be yeah, there'd be carnage going on in the sack anyway, because you'd you'd be kind of fighting all the animals, so you'd be breathing really heavily, run out of air. Yeah, the Romans always uh, innovative with ways to kill people. Yeah, crazy people. This was documented from 100 BC onwards and was most well known under the uh, reign of Hadrian, where it was also it became an optional form of punishment for parasites. You could choose... Well, as opposed to what? Can it, can it be worse? You could either get tossed into the water in a sack with a, a bunch of animals, or you could be thrown to the beasts in the arena. Mm. I think I would... Mm. I don't know. I'd fancy my chances and take the beasts. But you're not going to be then, able to... You're, that's just not going to happen. <laughs> that's yeah, just, yeah. still certain death. I mean, they, they just keep throwing beasts in. You'd probably die quicker. I, think no I don't know. That. You can only punch so many lions. And at least you'd be kind of sporting entertainment for the people. What, you think you'd die quicker in the arena? Well, if you just get tore up to shreds. Because if you're going to suffocate in a bag, it could take quite a while. If, 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 if death is certain, I think I'd take the sack. Well, if it's certain, oh. Yeah, I feel I like being torn apart is not a good way to go. I mean, neither of them are good ways to go, are they? No, not like, really. let's be honest. Anyway, this this uh, punishment was eventually replaced with being burnt alive, which is hardly any nicer. Um, there was there was actually a bizarre German revival of this form of punishment <laughs> in the Middle <laughs> of Ages, course. and um, there there were some modifications. So in the thirteenth and fourteenth centuries AD, the snake could be replaced with a painting of a snake. Okay, it's a bit of a copper. And the monkey could be replaced with a cat. So I think they basically run out of exotic animals. Yeah. And the last recorded case in Saxony was in 1734, which is 1734. slightly astonishing. Wow. That is late. A bit, a bit mad. Really. We've, we've come a long way in a very short period of time. Yeah. Thank God. Um, so that concludes my little uh, tangent from the second yeah. battle of Cannae. Well, similar similar kind of battles, not, not on a namesake basis, but... Um, I was thinking about Stalingrad because obviously the, Stalingrad took place over several months, not a day, um, and two million people died, not tens of thousands. The the Germans took Stalingrad, but the Sixth Army got surrounded by by the Soviets, and then it was it was game over. But um, funnily enough, the Nazi general in charge of the German Sixth Army, which got into Stalingrad and then got surrounded, was called um, Friedrich Paulus. Oh wow! So, like, like, like the consul Paulus who died at the Battle of Cannae. His namesake. So we're talking about Cannae namesakes. But um, yeah, Paulus was the uh, commander of the German Sixth Army, which I thought was quite oh, a funny connection. Um, and also, I think just also the there's probably a lot of comparisons one can make between the Soviets in the Second World War and the Romans in the Second Punic War. Because I think there's another stat. Well, while while the Romans lost what twenty percent of their male population and two years I think there's a horrible stat which is like if you were born in Russia in 1923 only 20% of those men were still alive by 1945 so 80% of that that age gap were just wiped out and yeah I think that's definitely worse than can I yeah I think they they, the Soviets had like 8.9 million was the death toll of soldiers um, in the Second World War so yeah on on a similar level of they didn't give up um, the Nazis 
made a lot of progress, but eventually they turned the tide and just literally just unlimited manpower threw it back mm. against the Germans and eventually won Which the war. Which is the enduring um, efficacy of Hannibal's tactic, though. Uh, yeah. Can I? And it, it, I don't know if total surrounding the, these huge pincer movements had really been employed that much. It, all the reading I've done seemed to suggest that Hannibal was really quite groundbreaking here. Yeah. But, I mean, you know, it just, it just shows that that tactic was adopted as one of the most yeah. effective it became, forms of warfare. Like we said, it, for... it became an obsession. And, like, it, even more so in modern times, too. Lots of people think, oh, you know, what can you actually learn about ancient times? And obviously it's not exactly the same, but when you've got artillery that can be fired long range and guns and machine guns, like, a big thing about the First World War and the Second World War was just encircling entire army groups. Because, you, you know, if you've got... You could have, like, hundreds of thousands of men, but if you're surrounded by a similar number but they've got guns and can just, you know, shoot in from all sides, You they automatically surrender. Mm. So... Yeah, cause, and also then the tactic was employed not just on an individual battlefield, but sort of mm. in the larger context of an overall yeah. campaign. Um, like, it's why Dunkirk threatened to be such a bloody disaster, because they completely, the Nazis completely encircled us, and if we didn't manage to get out, we would have lost our entire expeditionary force. And it's also why they managed to win yeah, the Battle of France so quickly, because they just encircled so many of the, so the French forces and punched straight through to Paris. But, All yeah. thanks to Hannibal. Yeah, we've got a lot, a lot to thank him for, for better or for worse. So I think that draws us largely to a conclusion of the Battle of Cannae. Huge impact yeah. for... Well, just warfare really in terms of the immediate impact on Rome's efforts in the second Punic War but then also down through the ages monumental battle in that sense yeah I mean you could you could always say that it didn't actually have much of an impact on the second Punic War because Rome won it was more just the impact it had long term on Roman ideas and values yes, although I think actually I think the loss at Cannae I think it should be said actually that it went quite a long way to reforming the Roman attitude and system, basically, in their army, which then led to the period where Rome was most dominant over the Mediterranean world over the following few centuries, because the losses at Cannae precipitated this change from the manipular structure to a cohort structure of armies yeah. when Marius reformed the army i won't go into too much de- detail here yeah um, another podcast another, another podcast episode. on marius um but what was also important is the change then to a more unified command because as we said earlier we had two consuls we had varro and paulus mm. in charge at Cannae, and in the lead up command had been alternating between the consuls each day every day yeah and they didn't quite have the same opinions on on how to conduct the campaign essentially and later in the war, you ended up with Scipio Africanus being given overall sole command in Africa for the entirety of the war. So mm. then you had unified and consistent command, which culminated in the Battle of Zama and Carthage's capitulation. Yeah. So in that sense, the defeat at Cannae was quite important for informing... A lot of radical reforms, yeah. I was also going to say... um. We don't really know who the consul was in charge, supposedly, on the day. 
yeah, lots of people right. say it's Varro because supposedly, obviously, Paulus was a ancestor of um, Aemilius Paulus who um, fought in the Third Punic War and they saw the destruction of Carthage. But it was under his patronage that Polybius, one of our main sources, obviously wrote this thing. So apparently they kind of tried to lessen the blame on him, whereas Varro didn't have many rich descendants who could kind of defend his actions yeah, he was much lower after death. Born, so yeah, I so they kind of just laid the blame on him being a bit foolhardy. I mean, even so, they they both... I think they, they, they both agreed that they needed to, to fight a battle. They probably just had some minor disagreements on what day and you know where exactly but yeah. I think it's, I think it's, on the day yeah. of the battle though Paulus was in command of the cavalry on the right and I think yeah. traditionally whoever had command on the field held the right mm. which I don't know how far that's actually been considered by historians but I mean I, well, it's also it doesn't help when he dies and the other consul flees the field there's just no yes. no cohesion whatsoever it certainly was a trigger for a lot of a lot of changes. Yeah. So there we go. The Battle of Cannae. Done. Dusted. Well done, Hannibal. So that then really is the conclusion. Hope you've enjoyed our tangents and our look into this major battle. And we will see you next time. We will. Valete. Valete. <laughs>